Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and I am really, really sick of being at home. March 6th marked the one-year anniversary of the day my partner and I started sheltering in place. And while I do love him very, very much, I admit I do miss the thrill of seeing literally anyone else I know in person. With this incredible pandemic fatigue on my mind, then, I've spent a lot of time recently dwelling on the experience of another very famous French shut-in, the author Marcel Proust. Beset with lifelong illnesses, Marcel wrote the better part of his masterpiece, In Search of Lost Time, confined to his bedroom in a cloud of medicinal smoke and warm blankets. Emerging from his shelter only in the middle of the night, mostly to conduct research on high society for his books, Marcel held one person in particular esteem, his beloved housekeeper, Celeste Alberet. Together, the two of them formed a remarkable partnership, transgressing social and class boundaries and building an intimate interior world for themselves. It's a beautiful story of friendship and perseverance, past war, illness, and even death. As we start to consider the light at the end of this long, solitudinous tunnel, perhaps we can draw lessons from the subjects of this week's episode, Celeste and Marcel. On November 14, 1913, Marcel Proust made two of the best decisions in his personal and professional life. He self-financed the publication of Swan's Way, the first volume of his life's work, and he asked his chauffeur's wife for a favor. Monsieur Proust wished to deliver signed copies of his great new work to each of his most beloved and most influential friends. Suffering from a medley of lifelong illnesses, Marcel was unable to make the trips himself, and his usual housekeeper was recovering from surgery. Marcel reached out to his chauffeur, a young man named Odile, who recently acknowledged that his new wife was having trouble adjusting to life away from her family. Would your wife be available to run an errand for me? It might take her mind off of missing her mother. Odile agreed to speak with his wife that evening. "'You'll see,' he reassured the young, unworldly Celeste. "'Monsieur Proust is a very nice man. You must be careful not to displease him because he notices everything, but you'll never meet anyone more charming.' The next morning, Celeste summoned up her courage and reported to the doorstep of 102 Boulevard Hausmann. For the next ten years, Celeste reported to Marcel Proust's home for work, and as she would later recall, those ten years feel either like one year or a whole lifetime. Celeste had visited the home once before with her husband, just after their wedding. Fresh from the countryside, Celeste had never stepped foot outside of her village before marriage, and the sights and sounds of Paris soon overwhelmed her. Stepping inside the apartment where she and Odile would begin their married life together, Celeste remembered that the apartment was brand new, tidy, and comfortable, 
and I started to cry as soon as I got inside. Then I fell fast asleep. For weeks, Celeste sat around moping, until Odile suggested that he come take a stroll with her. Now that the couple was settling into their new home, Odile needed to let his most famous clients know that he was available to drive them around Paris again, and he started with his eccentric, lovable fixture on the Belle Epoque social scene, Marcel Proust. Monsieur Proust entered the kitchen. I can see him now. He was wearing only a jacket and trousers and a white shirt, but I was impressed. I can still see that great gentleman enter the room. He looked very young, slender but not thin, with beautiful skin and extremely white teeth and that naturally formed curl on his forehead, which he always would have. And then his exquisite elegance and that particular manner a kind of restraint, which I later noticed in many asthmatics, as though he were husbanding his strength and his breath. The elegant man greeted his chauffeur's new wife with impeccable manners, before retreating back upstairs. Now, Celeste found herself back on the ground floor of 102 Boulevard Hausman, ready to courier signed copies of Swan's Way to all the who's who of Paris. Marcel's valet carefully wrapped each book in specially selected paper, pink for female recipients, blue for male recipients. Then he transferred the stack of wrapped books into Celeste's arms, and she set out on an all-day journey around Paris, getting to know the city's most fashionable districts house by house as she delivered a copy of Swan's Way to the city's literary and social elites. After a few weeks of this, Celeste began reporting for daily work. Proust's valet was a bit of a family heirloom who had once served Marcel's own father, but now he was a drunk and a degenerate gambler, and his wife spent all of her time complaining when she wasn't serving as Proust's housekeeper. When the valet's wife underwent surgery, Marcel seized the opportunity to have her replaced with the new woman, who was discreet, quick-witted, and above all else, quiet. Celeste learned the ropes from the valet, how to clean the house, where to purchase Monsieur's dinner, how to handle guests at the door. Eventually, Celeste was initiated into the writer's most important routine, his morning coffee and croissants. For the first time, Celeste penetrated the most sacred room in the house, Monsieur Proust's bedroom. The smoke was so thick, she remembered, you could have cut it with a knife. Monsieur Proust, who suffered terribly from asthma, burned fumigation powder, but I wasn't prepared for this dense cloud. The only light was from a bedside lamp, and that gave just a little glow. I saw a brass bedstead and a bit of white sheet with the green light falling on it. All I could see of Monsieur Proust was a white shirt under a thick sweater and the upper part of his body propped against two pillows. I bowed towards the invisible face and put the saucer with the croissant down on the tray. He gave a wave of the hand, presumably to thank me, but didn't say a word. Then I left. It was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. 
Celeste understood instinctively that this strange, elegant, polite, ailing man wanted nothing more than discretion and silence to work. Later, she realized the most striking element of the bedroom was not the smoke, but the walls. Every wall of Proust's bedroom, and even the ceiling, was covered in cork for soundproofing. Inside his holy sanctum, Proust could shut out the glittering world of Paris whenever he chose and retreat into his writing. It took no time at all for the two to develop a sort of dance. Celeste would arrive to chat and share gossip when Proust desired company in connection with the outside world, but she would dip in and out in silence when he needed space to work. They developed a rhythm, and before long, it was theirs alone. On June 28, 1914, Gavrilo Princip assassinated the Archduke Francis Ferdinand, kicking off World War I and drawing the glittering world of the Belle Epoque to an end. Almost overnight, Marcel Proust's entire world disappeared, with everyone from his close friends, his brother, and even his aging valet receiving their mobilization papers. Odile Albaret received his papers right away, and after a few lonely nights in their apartment alone after her husband's departure for the front, Celeste moved into 102 Boulevard Hausman for the duration of the war. While Celeste began filling the shoes of the rest of the household staff, almost all of whom had been called up, Marcel spent his time fretting about his brother's safety and his own money. The volatility of the wartime stock market, combined with some truly misguided investments, shredded Marcel's wealth. Consumed with worries about his family and finances, with the booming sounds of the Kaiser's army sounding closer and closer each day, Marcel decided to flee. Searching for physical and psychological safety, there was only one place to go. The sea. On a fine day in the spring of 1881, young Marcel and his family took a long walk through the Bois de Boulogne. After enjoying an afternoon outdoors, they turned back toward the family home, when all of a sudden, nine-year-old Marcel stopped breathing. Gasping for air, he collapsed into his father's arms. As his father, an esteemed doctor, watched in terror, Marcel nearly died right there on the sidewalk. As it later turned out, Marcel suffered from severe asthma. This first attack traumatized the entire family, and it changed the course of Marcel's life. His brother, Robert, remembers that all of a sudden, his rambunctious brother had to give up outings in the open air, the beauty of the countryside, and the charm of flowers. Marcel spent the rest of his life terrified of suffocation, and while his asthma went into remission during certain periods of his life, he wrestled with it forever after. The rest of Marcel's childhood became a struggle to keep him alive. A hundred and ten times, Marcel had his nasal passages cauterized to render him less sensitive to pollen. The doctors assured him the procedures would work, 
but after a trip to the country, a field of lilacs left Marcel seized with such violent asthma attacks that until they were able to bring me back to Paris, my hands and feet remained purple like those of drowning victims. His parents did not know what to do. They were from the old school. Fresh air was a good cure, and if that wasn't enough, accompany it with a brisk walk. Over and over, Adrian took Marcel to the seaside, hoping the sea air would strengthen his lungs. One resort turned into Marcel's favorite, Cabourg, a fashionable new watering hole for the well-to-do. For the rest of his life, Marcel treasured those seaside vacations, especially the ones he took at Cabourg, but they were few and far between. Instead, he spent long stretches of time in his bedroom, cut off from the world. Here, cocooned away from pollen, dust, and other dangers, young Marcel learned how to dwell in his own imagination, recreating the outside world. It was a skill that would shape the course of his life. Thanks to his father's prestigious medical career, Marcel was admitted to an elite private school where he enmeshed himself into a social network of rich, privileged children. Though he missed long stretches of school due to illness, Marcel was an adept social climber, and by the time he graduated school, his life was consumed with society events, with a bit of writing going on in the background. The year of his graduation, France passed a law requiring a year of voluntary military service. Improbably enough, the sickly, frail Marcel enlisted. Within weeks of his arrival at the barracks, the captain asked Marcel to take a room in town because his nightly coughing fits kept the other soldiers awake. Marcel made it through a year of service, mostly thanks to a colonel impressed by his fancy parents. Excused from most athletic requirements, the most active part of Marcel's week came on Sundays, when Marcel used his leave to visit fashionable salons. After enrolling in the local military college, Marcel finished 63rd in a class of 64. Meanwhile, his brother Robert was thriving. After leaving the army, Marcel drifted headlong into society life, publishing a few pieces of writing in between trips to the theater and nights at the salon. His writing was well-received, but not especially serious, mostly society sketches and clever gossip columns. Like many a rich young doofus, Marcel spent gobs of money on everything, slept all day and stayed out all night, and wrecked his health. He fell in love with men, and possibly a few women, and visited brothels to try to sort out his urges, to little success. In a real flex move, Marcel took a job to please his parents, immediately applied for sick leave, and extended his sick leave for three years until they decided he had resigned. He had never once shown up for work. By the end of the century, the nearly 30-year-old Marcel was barely employed, very well-known in society circles, a little bit published, and very unmarried. Marcel's parents were terrified that their brilliant son might just amount to nothing at all. 
But beyond all of these problems, Marcel's illness kept worsening. Marcel's early letters reveal a young man whose nights of social chatter in the arts were interrupted by life-threatening fits that lasted for days. For two days, one letter says, my asthma has been so violent that I've not been able to bear anything or anyone near me. Later, he describes two days of convulsions caused by asthma and suffocation. Another letter describes attacks so violent that nothing could stop them. His medical treatment was, shall we say, haphazard. Skeptical after so many failed procedures, Proust insisted on developing his own treatments, the most infamous of which was the anti-asthma powder, which he used to fumigate his room. Marcel would smoke anti-asthma cigarettes, and as an asthmatic myself, I I have to shudder at that particular product, but they were actually worse than you think, because sometimes the smoke from the medicated cigarettes would mix with the smoke from the fumigation powder, and Marcel Proust would give himself atropine poisoning. Meanwhile, Marcel's father was busy writing prestigious papers about the hottest neurological disease of the day, called neurasthenia. Papa published a paper in 1897 in which he described neurasthenia as a weakness of the nerves, causing headache, insomnia, and irritability. It was to be found among those who lived in high society, those who go out much, have their whole day taken up by the duties that convention and the care of their reputation impose on them, visits, dinners, balls, and evening parties. The condition could be made worse by what Papa Proust called bad education, which is to say, too much attention from one's mother. Even today, Marcel Proust has a reputation for hypochondria, Modern scholars compete to see who can discredit more of his health problems as attention-seeking or mental illness. They see his illness as a metaphor for homosexuality, as attention-seeking behavior, as something that was all in his mind, as though that made it any less real. But this was a young man with a life-threatening condition. He'd been traumatized by repeated near-death experiences, and he lived in terror of the next unstoppable attack, which could be his last. Wouldn't you close the shutters, too? But Marcel persisted in his society life and his writing, publishing some early works, but mostly, as he would put it, wasting his time away. Then... A series of calamitous events changed Marcel's entire life. Before long, he would be on his way to literary immortality and physical collapse. In 1903, Marcel's father passed away, and in 1905, his sainted mother followed. It was the worst tragedy of Marcel's life, and he would never truly recover. She takes my life with her, as Papa had taken away hers. As Marcel wrote soon afterwards, My life has now forever lost its only purpose. I have lost her whose unceasing vigilance brought me in peace and tenderness the only honey of my life. Worst of all, he blamed himself for causing her so much anxiety over the years. 
I have the feeling that, because of my poor health, I was the bane and the torment of her life. With his parents dead, his younger brother married with a child of his own, in his romantic desires considered shameful and impossible, Marcel found himself truly, utterly alone. Jolted out of his old life, Marcel realized he had wasted his life, an entire decade spent at dinner parties, instead of committing himself to his writing. Soon thereafter, he moved into his late uncle's Paris apartment at 102 Boulevard Hausman and embarked on a new way of life, serious, hard-working, and indoors. Within weeks of the move to 102 Boulevard Hausman, Marcel Proust adopted the habits which would distinguish him for the rest of his life. Nocturnal hours, an almost negligible appetite, and a neurotic obsession with sensory intrusions from the outside world. He was not, at least then, a recluse. Marcel continued his ventures into society, where his characteristic wit and unfailing manners secured him goodwill and interest in his next publication. But he was also known for rejecting friends who showed up at his home, for canceling appointments, and for refusing entry to anybody wearing perfume. Marcel's attacks got worse. Within weeks of moving in, he wrote that, For the first time in my life, I've been laid low by attacks which last 36 hours, 40, 50 hours. He set to work renovating 102 Boulevard Hausman to suit his needs, stowing most of the family treasures around the apartment, but tucking a very few totemic items into his small bedroom. In one of the most famous home renovations in literary history, Marcel added that cork lining to his bedroom walls, which would mesmerize Celeste a decade later. He also affixed heavy shutters to his window and created a sensory deprivation chamber in which to dedicate himself completely to his writing. There, as in his childhood bedroom, Proust could sink into his own imagination, recreating the world he had known. It was during this time that a germ of an idea formed in his mind. What does it mean to experience the world? What does it mean to remember your experiences? What does it mean to lose something, someone, some time? Is it possible to fight back against the tyrannical passage of time? In the summer of 1908, Proust began sketching the structure of a grand work, though he didn't realize it at the time. For the next four years, Proust divided his time between writing and stepping into the world to conduct research. Research on high society, on low society, on streetcars, on market stalls, research on women's hats, and the era's unwritten rules of conduct. His entire life until now had been a smorgasbord of sensation, and Proust was attempting nothing less than to capture the whole thing. Bit by bit, Marcel's kernel of an idea shaped itself into a story, then into a grand vision. By the time Marcel secured publication of the first volume of his magnum opus, the writing process was already taking a visible toll. 
My health has degraded entirely, he wrote, and I have grown so thin you would not recognize me. Deeply underweight, with a bushy beard, Marcel traveled outside the city, only to return days later, unable to go any further. In the week leading up to the publication of his first volume, Marcel conducted interviews with leading newspapers and journals from his bed. One journalist was struck by Marcel's bedroom. Not realizing how famous the space would one day become, he documented the room's piles of books, papers, letters, and little boxes of medicine, a little electric lamp whose light is filtered by a green shade. The journalist noted that the author wrote only at night and always in bed. Another journalist marveled at the bedroom eternally closed to fresh air and light and completely covered in cork. Proust replied in a prescient quote which would dominate the last decade of his life, Shadow and silence and solitude have obliged me to recreate within myself the lights and thrills of nature and society. Such was Marcel Proust's mental state when Celeste Alberet entered his life. A few weeks after that interview, Celeste moved in for good, taking a silver tray of croissants and coffee into that smoke-filled chamber every afternoon. Before long, the two became close. Marcel was a friend to a lonely young woman, and Celeste was a conduit to the outside world and a clever gossip to boot. As Marcel's friends and his beloved younger brother shipped out and the German army rolled in, Proust was desperate to escape Paris, and Celeste made the perfect traveling companion. His only compunction was, as always, etiquette. Was it too scandalous for a man like him to travel with a young, pretty girl like her? Celeste thought a moment and then suggested, What if I dressed myself up as a man? Marcel cracked up and figured, eh, the world's going to hell anyway. Why not travel with my new favorite person? Shortly before their departure, Marcel took a rare moonlight stroll around a deserted Paris, and he mourned this immense Paris that I had not realized I loved so much, waiting in all its powerless beauty for what seemed the inevitable onslaught. While Paris would survive World War I unshelled, the Belle Epoque of Marcel's youth would never return. On September 3, 1914, Marcel and Celeste boarded a train to Cabourg, squeezing Marcel's considerable luggage onto a train packed to the gills with soldiers and refugees. By then, the trains were so overstuffed with French men and women fleeing the capital that some chose to ride on top of the train itself. The four-hour trip took 22 hours to complete, and when Marcel checked into his favorite luxury hotel, he found the first two floors turned into an auxiliary hospital. Nevertheless, before long, Marcel and Celeste recreated their routine, with Celeste dipping into the hotel kitchen to grab a tray of coffee and croissants, and Marcel filling his hotel room with clouds of fumigation powder. Slowly, over the course of their stay, Marcel began welcoming Celeste into his thoughts. At Cabourg, Celeste remembered, 
He was less of a recluse. At Boulevard Hausman, the curtains of his room, let alone the windows, were never opened while he was there. But at the hotel, the curtains were drawn back in the afternoon, and he himself seemed to open up much more. It was there that he finally gave up calling me Madame and started to call me Celeste. Together, the two would stroll along the hotel terrace, staring out at the sea, lost in conversation. When all other topics failed them, they'd inevitably talk about Ernest, the awful young man Marcel had hired just before the trip, whom neither of them could stand. Nothing brings a good friendship closer than a shared enemy, and the arrogant young Ernest served the purpose beautifully. Celeste became less self-conscious, and Marcel shared some of his most cherished memories and observations about the world. One day, he called Celeste over to the window and pointed out a storm raging on the sea just beyond the hotel. Laughing at her country girl awe, Marcel told the story of a trip he'd taken to the Breton coast many years earlier. It was magnificent, Celeste. I'd love to go again. Then Celeste heard Marcel say something he'd repeat many times in their years together. Perhaps, one day, if I'm better, and I'll take you, you absolutely must see it. On October 13th, Marcel and Celeste boarded the train back to Paris. To everyone's surprise, the German army had been repelled at the Marne, and Paris would not face another siege. After this brief excursion outside, Proust was desperate to return to his dark apartment. His memory and his imagination contained the whole world, and now it was his duty to put his mind to use. That afternoon, on the train journey home, disaster struck. Marcel suffered a terrible asthma attack. I was almost out of my wits, Celeste recalled. Not knowing any better, I'd put his medicines and fumigation powder in the valise with his papers. For nearly one hundred miles, Proust coughed and hacked, turning color, gasping for air. Finally, Celeste tracked down a railway officer to retrieve the medicine from their luggage, and for the rest of the journey home, Marcel burned his fumigation papers and filled their train car with thick black smoke. When they finally made it home, 102 Boulevard Hausman was filled with workers, taking advantage of his trip to Cabourg to vacuum the apartment. Dust was everywhere. I can still see him, Celeste remembered, streaming with sweat and still choking as he bent over the fumigation powder. I was terrified, convinced I'd never see him alive again. But slowly, Marcel recovered. In a way. In the days that followed the dreadful return journey, as the suitcases were stored back in the closets and the clothes carefully folded into drawers, Marcel made up his mind. All he had seen in the past few months, the deaths and departures of those he loved, the emptying streets of Paris, and above all, the disappearance of the Belle Epoque into the jaws of mechanical warfare, the world Proust knew was melting away. His life's grand work revealed itself at last. He would bear witness to his beloved fin de siècle Paris, capturing its fragile, glittering, transient beauty, 
to see whether he could conquer that old enemy, time. Retreating once more into his dark bedroom, muffling the sounds of tanks, closing the shutters against the vision of armies on the march, blocking out the smell of gunpowder, Proust's room would become a fortress all its own. My dear Celeste, he beckoned to his housekeeper and confidant, there's something I must tell you. I've just been to Cabourg with you, but that's all over. I shan't ever go out again, to Cabourg or anywhere else. The soldiers do their duty, but since I can't fight as they do, my duty is to write my book, do my work. I haven't the time for anything else. End of Part 1